0: The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect.
1: Our teaching text this evening comes from Acts 2, 22 through 41. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all all are witness. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone from the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word and were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Amen. Well, good to be with you this evening. We haven't met before. My name is Tim. I serve as the pastor here at Citizens. Like Garrison said, starting out, we exist to be a Jesus-centered family on mission with him. That's everything that we are about. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 2. That passage that Cole just read for us, Acts chapter 2, is where we are going to be. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some on the ends of the rows. Just nod. Somebody can pass that on down to you. Uh, If that is the one you're using, it should be on page five thirty. 530. Let me pray for us, and then we'll we'll dive in together. God, we are so grateful. I, I pray that every week, say that every week, but it really is a privilege to get to gather with your people. I pray that we don't miss that, as gathering happens every week, because it just feels like it's, it can be mundane and routine and the same thing over and over. God, I pray that we don't miss the power that comes with being with your people and getting to sing and remind ourselves, even if we don't feel it, that we're supposed to set our hopes on you. That you're the everlasting one, that you are the one that has existed from eternity past, and eternity present, and eternity future. That you are the one that has created all things, that in you all things hold together. And you're worth our time, you're worth our attention, you're worth our devotion and adoration. God, I pray that you'll be made much of through your word, as you promise in your scriptures that it won't return void, that when it's preached and proclaimed and read and thought about and studied, that it takes root in our lives. We're actually different because of what we see in the Bible. We love you. For all sins, in Jesus' name, amen. Before we get to Acts chapter 2, if you have taken our membership class before, you've heard me talk about this idea of what it means to be a healthy Church. We stole it from, uh, unashamedly, we give him credit uh, from a retired pastor named Ray Orland in Nashville, Tennessee. And he talks about how if you want to be a healthy church, or if you yourself want to be a healthy Christian, a healthy follower of Jesus, that's going to take two things. That you have to have what he calls gospel theology and gospel culture. Gospel theology, meaning how you think about God, you have to have right beliefs, right doctrine, right ordered thoughts about the world and reality and God and who Jesus is and all of that. And gospel culture, you actually have to live the right way. You have to let that theology affect how you go about your day-to-day life, how you live uh, in your marriage, how you live in your friendships, how you spend your money, how you approach your job, all of that. And he says, if you don't have one of those two things, you can fall into a couple different traps. So he says, first, if you have gospel theology, right thought, but you don't have gospel culture, right living, then you're going to fall into hypocrisy, right? You're going to say all the right things, believe all the right things, think all the right things, but it's not actually going to impact how you live. Also, he says the inverse is true. If you have gospel culture, if you live the right way, but you don't have gospel theology, then you have fragility. Right, you have a bunch of good rhythms and routines, but you don't actually have a rootedness in who Jesus is and what that means for your life. But he says, if you have both gospel theology and gospel culture, then that leads to power. the ability to actually live as Christ calls you to live and to think how He calls you to live, and actually have power to where the gospel takes root in your life and in the lives of those around you, so where God's kingdom is made manifest in that arena, in that space. So what we're going to do over the next two weeks as we kind of tackle the second chapter or second half of chapter two of Acts is we're going to talk about these two things, gospel theology and gospel culture. We're going to save gospel culture for next week, but we're going to talk today about gospel theology, this foundation of who we are as a church built on what we refer to as the gospel. To make sure we're on the same page, when I say gospel, here's what I mean. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ, God's son, came to earth lived a perfect life, died on the cross, and rose again so that sinful humans by grace through faith in him could live forever with God. Or as I've heard one pastor put it, the gospel means simply God is good, we are not, Jesus saves, repent and trust in him. Love that. God is good, we are not, Jesus saves, repent and trust in him. If if you're not a Christian, if you're newer to this whole church thing, if somebody dragged you along tonight, I want to say welcome. Super glad that you're here. I genuinely hope you find our church to be a safe place for you to ask questions and to wrestle with who's Jesus and what does that mean and and how does he affect my life and should I even consider what he says about himself. I hope you find this a place where you can ask those questions. I, I hope tonight especially is a really good opportunity for you to hear what we're all about. As followers of Jesus, this is our central theme. Our core to who we are as Christians is the gospel. Jesus, who he is and what he has done. If you are a Christian, I hope nothing I say to you is new. But instead, I would invite you tonight to be refreshed, to remember, to cherish again what it means to be a Christian, what it means to believe the gospel. There can be this temptation or tendency in the Christian life to think the gospel is something we kind of move past. Right? So if you've been a follower of Jesus for any amount of time, you know there can be this temptation or this tendency to kind of view the gospel like a bad New Year's resolution. You know what I mean? This idea of like, yeah, okay, I had something I said and I did one time and I thought it was a good idea and maybe occasionally I refer back to it, but for the most part it's forgotten about a month later. Just me. Maybe you're better at New Year's resolutions than I am. Or for some of us, we view the gospel like a starting gate to a horse race, right? So my father-in-law is a veterinarian on racehorses, which is a really cool profession. And I get to uh, reap the rewards of that. So I get to go watch horse races like the Kentucky Derby and all that fun stuff. What they do is before the horses get going on the race, they load them all up into this huge gated little thing called the starting gate. And then it's like, boom, the minute they all get in, they take off. And it's the signal to the horses that it's go time, that it's race time. And some of us, we have the temptation to treat the gospel like the starting gate. It's this concept or this idea or this belief that we affirmed one time, but but that's that's not important anymore. I moved past that. Like I believed the gospel, it was good, it helped me start the Christian life, but now I just got to kind of figure it out on my own. I have to kind of do it under my own strength. What I want to invite you into tonight is to not think wrongly that you move past the gospel in your Christian faith. The gospel is not something you affirmed one time, you believed one time, but rather it is central to all of life as a follower of Jesus. So I want to look at five in particular things as we talk about the gospel. Really basic outline. Let me show my work. Number one, we're going to look at the plan of the gospel. This will be on the screen later. The plan of the gospel, the proof of the gospel, the point of the gospel, the response to the gospel, and lastly, the promise of the gospel. We're just going to dig into what does this mean, who Jesus is, what he did for us. Number one, the plan of the gospel. The plan of the gospel. Acts chapter 2, to to catch you up to where we are in the story. Uh, In Acts chapter 1, Jesus, he died, he rose again, he appeared to his followers, he said, hey, go be my witnesses, tell people about me all over the world, but first, wait for the Holy Spirit. Wait for the power from on high. He leaves, goes to the right hand of God, Holy Spirit comes, a crowd is gathered, and now all of a sudden these people are speaking in all of these different languages of the whole crowd that is gathered. And Peter gets up, he starts preaching this sermon, and there's people from all these different nations all hearing Peter in their own language. And we're taking it it uh, mid-sermon here in verse 22. Peter says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. In other words, Jesus, this guy you saw that did all the miracles, that guy. This Jesus, verse 23, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So unpack what what Peter's saying here. So first Peter makes it abundantly clear. The cross was not a mistake. The cross was not a mistake. He says right there, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So the cross, Jesus facing the suffering and pain and death was not him being powerless or weak or unable to stop what these guys wanted to do to him. The cross was not something God simply made up as he went along. The the cross, the gospel, this death and suffering of Jesus was always God's plan. It was his definite plan, his appointed plan. The cross was always God's plan A. God didn't freak out when sin entered the world in Genesis 3 like, "What am I going to do?" Oh no, Adam and Eve screwed up. They ate the fruit. What am I? No, he wasn't he wasn't freaked out by that. The cross was God's plan. We see this in Genesis three fifteen, all the way back in the garden. God is cursing the serpent for tempting Adam and Eve. And he says this, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Even right here, after the very first sin of Adam and Eve, God promises, I'm going to send a redeemer. I'm going to send my son. Jesus on the cross was God's plan, but then the question becomes, okay, so why was a cross needed? Why did Jesus have to die? Why did there have to be this plan in the first place? Think about Peter's statement there at the end of verse 23. Notice what he says. He's speaking to this giant crowd of at least 3,000, if not more people, and he says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. All right, so think about this. So Peter's talking to this giant crowd assembled all over for this feast of Pentecost, most of whom would not have been in Jerusalem 50 days earlier when Jesus was actually crucified, right? So they had no actual culpable responsibility in the actual taking place of the cross, of Jesus being sentenced and put on trial and crucified. But Peter looks at them and in a shocking statement says, you, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, there's a sense in which he's trying to get this crowd to understand that they are guilty. They're all responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. But here's what's interesting. The Bible actually says this is true of all of humanity. That we, even though we weren't there 2,000 years ago at the trial of Jesus, even though we didn't betray him for 30 pieces of silver like Judas, even though we didn't shout with the crowd, we want Barabbas, we are the reason why the cross was necessary. Our sin, our rebellion against God. God couldn't let it slide. He couldn't let it go. People have this kind of wrong, false idea of God where they think, okay, if God is love, if he is gracious and merciful and kind, which he is all of those things, why can't he just let sin go? Right? Why can't you just look at it and go, okay, you rebelled against me. You disobeyed me. NBD. No big deal. Don't even worry about it. But what we have to understand is that yes, God is love, but God is also just. The just God cannot let sin go unpunished. There's real wrong, and there must be real consequences for that wrong. Something or someone must pay for the sins and wrongs of humanity. So because God is just, a sacrifice must be made for sin. But here's the good news of the gospel, because God is gracious, he is the one that provides that sacrifice. Let me say that again. Because God is just, a sacrifice must be made for sin. But because God is gracious, he is the one that provides that sacrifice. Jesus had to die according to the plan and knowledge of God. So this is God's plan in the gospel, the salvation of the world through the suffering of his son. That God would actually use his son on the cross, his own son, as a sacrifice for our sins. It's God's plan. Over the way the hymn, How Deep the Father's Love puts it, says this in the second verse. It says, Behold the man upon a cross, my guilt upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished." God would not leave us in our sin. He would not leave us to figure it out on our own. This is what Colossians 2 says about it. Verse 13, it says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. But notice, he didn't just cancel it. He didn't just forgive it. Look what he did. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross is God's plan for the salvation of the world, the suffering of his son. It's number one, the plan of the gospel. Number two, the proof of the gospel. The proof of the gospel. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to to be held by it. So Peter tells the crowd, you guys killed Jesus. You're, he was the son of God. You're responsible. It was God's plan, but you're still responsible for it. But because it was God's plan, God didn't leave him in the ground. He raised him up. And then I love that phrase. He says, loosing the pangs of death. Christ defeated death. And in doing so, he undid the bind that death had on the world. I think there's a, if there's ever a year to understand this reality that Christ defeated death. It's 2020, right? I know we're past it, but it kind of feels like 2020 2.0 a little bit, right? There was every year to understand this, a a year marked in so many ways by death, right? Death on a global scale, death on a a national scale, death that I know so many of us have faced in our own personal lives and in personal relationships. This phrase is good news for that. The grave could not hold Jesus. That he loosed the pangs of death. That death is not the final say in our stories anymore. That though we mourn because death is a thing worth mourning over, we don't mourn as those without hope. We mourn knowing we worship a Savior who defeated death. Who loosed the pangs of death. Peter says the grave couldn't hold him. Keeps going, verse 25. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. So he's quoting David here from Psalm 16. Verse 27, he continues, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, which is an Old Testament phrase for the grave, or let your holy ones see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You'll make me full of gladness with your presence. So Psalm 16, Peter's quoting David here. It's a beautiful psalm, but then look at what he says. Verse 29, he says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. And his tomb was with us to this day, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. that He was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This is Jesus God raised up. And of that we all are witnesses. So Peter's pulling this uh, wonderful little blindside switcheroo here. So he's talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And then he starts quoting David. And David, you have to understand, is kind of the man in Jewish culture. Like he was who many consider to be the first true king of the Israelites. He was, uh, it's his line and lineage that the Messiah was going to come through. And he wrote giant chunks of the Psalms and other parts of the Jewish scriptures. And so Peter's setting up this whole quote from Psalm 16. And he's about how God wouldn't let him see corruption. And he wouldn't let him uh, abandon him to Hades or, or let him die or stay dead. And the crowd's probably nodding along. Like, yeah, David, uh uh-huh, we're on board David. And then he wraps it up in verse 29, and he basically says, by the way, this is not about David at all. And I know that because you can go to David's grave, grave. It's south of the pool of Siloam. David's dead. David was not writing this about David. David was actually writing this about Jesus, the same guy who I just made sure to tell you you crucified. Wonderful switcheroo where he's saying, no, this is not about him. This is about Christ. Here's Peter's point. You want proof that Jesus is the Messiah? You want proof that this man you gave up is the one who said who he is, who he says he was. Go to his tomb. It's empty. The tomb is empty. You can go visit David's tomb. You can dig it up. There's a body there. Go to Jesus' tomb. It's empty. You won't find a body. This is the proof of the gospel that the tomb of Jesus is empty. And he says, of that we all are witnesses. Verse 32, he says, if you don't believe me, ask the 120 other people who, by the way, because of the Holy Spirit are speaking in a whole bunch of different languages. They would affirm what I am affirming. The tomb is empty. Jesus is not there. Throughout the book of Acts, this resurrection of Jesus is kind of like a hinge point in the story where the the apostles in the early church will consistently kind of refer back to, Jesus died, but he he rose again. And we we saw him. Kind of becomes this refrain as they suffer for their faith, as they take the gospel to the nations. It becomes this thing they rehearse and repeat. Jesus rose again. The apostle Paul picks up on this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says this, for I delivered to you as a first importance, the main thing, the primary thing you have to understand, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, and he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James then to all the apostles. Paul says, this is what you have to understand. Jesus is not dead anymore. He proved who he was by rising from the grave. The proof of the gospel is that the tomb of Jesus is empty. That's the proof. The plan, the proof, number three, the point. The point of the gospel. Verse 33, Peter's going to continue his sermon. It says this, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. We talked about the Holy Spirit all last week. If you haven't listened to it, it's on our website, citizensharlotte.com. Highly recommend it. Verse 34, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. At the crux of Peter's message is not an idea. It's not a belief. It's not a viewpoint. It's not a worldview to consider. The point and the crux of the gospel is the person and work of Jesus. It's about him. The gospel is about him. It's not about an idea. The gospel is not simply something we just kind of go to to make ourselves feel good about ourselves. It's not simply something that we affirm that makes us happy when we're sad. The gospel is not simply something we can like, okay, I got this worldview and I have this way of living life and I have this way and let's try the gospel. Maybe that works. The gospel is not some set of ideology. The gospel is centered around a person. His name is Jesus. He's God's son. And Peter says he went low. In humility, Jesus came to earth. He took on flesh. He became a baby. All the wonderful things we celebrate at Christmas, but that wasn't as low as he was going to get. He went lower. He went to the cross. He suffered a humiliating death that at that time was reserved for the worst of worst criminals and prisoners. Jesus died that death. He went even lower. He went to the grave. But now, Peter says, he's no longer just that. Now he's lifted up. He's exalted. He's at the right hand of God. I mean, a picture what Peter says here, God has made Jesus's enemies, a footstool. Like it doesn't get any more boss than having your enemies be your footrest, right? Like you want to know if you're in charge, your enemies literally are what you use to prop up your feet. And that's the image that Peter gives of the authority and power and rule and reign that Jesus has. You ever think, man, I don't know if God's in charge here. I don't know if, I don't know if Jesus can, can work this out. I don't know if this situation in my life, like it just seems cloudy. I don't know how it's going to work out. I wonder if God's going to take care of me. God made Jesus's enemies, his footrest. What? This is King Jesus. This is grave could not hold him. Jesus. This is all things hold together by him and through him. Jesus. This is ruling and reigning and in charge Jesus. And so when we say as a church that we are a Jesus-centered family on mission, what we are saying is that we are not simply going, hey, have you considered him? We're saying, no, he's ruling and reigning. It's your choice whether you're going to accept that or not. And he's going to keep ruling and reigning regardless. This quote I've been thinking on so much over the past six months or so, it's by a, a pastor named David Bosch, and he writes on evangelism. He talks about uh, mission and evangelism, and I love this quote. He says, evangelism is much less trying to convince people of an idea, and evangelism, sharing the gospel, is much more announcing the universal rule and reign of Christ. And I love that idea. He goes, evangelism is much less, hey, have you considered him? Have you thought about him? Like, I just uh, can I bother you for a second? Let me just tell you about this Jesus guy. Like, No, evangelism is going, hey, Jesus is in charge. And he rules and he reigns. And he defines reality. And he died for you. That's going to be true whether you accept it or not. It's the point of the gospel. The point of the gospel is in the person and work of Jesus. That's why we make much of him. Even last week when we said all the good things we said about the Holy Spirit, we even said that one of the main purposes and goals and roles of the Holy Spirit is to make much of Jesus. It's why we sing to and about Jesus. It's why we preach to and about Jesus. It's why we want him to be first on our lips. It's about him. That's not something fun we just say. Yeah, we're about Jesus. We're Jesus-centered. That is what we want to be about in everything. In our lives, in our church, all of it. He's the point. It's all about him, what he has done. His death, his resurrection, his defeat of Satan, sin, and death. Number four, the response to the gospel. The response to the gospel, verse thirty-seven. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. and Said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, "Brothers, what shall we do?" I love that phrase, "cut to the heart." To be honest, it's just way more than we can go into. Garrison wrote a really good article on what that phrase means: "cut to the heart" and conviction versus shame. All that it's on our website. Go check it out. Verse thirty-eight. So they were cut to the heart. They were experiencing deep Holy Spirit conviction. What do we do, Peter? What do we do? Verse 38, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter gives a very straightforward, clear and simple answer. This is how you respond to the gospel. You repent, you believe, baptize and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit break that down a little bit. The first thing Peter says to do is to repent and believe. Repentance is this Christian term for change. It's it's the idea of you're going one way in your life. You're chasing after one set of things, one belief system. You're trying to pursue this one thing or these things to give you life and happiness and meaning and value and purpose. And repentance means to go, okay, that's not cutting it. Jesus died for me and actually turning away and going this way towards God, towards his will for your life, towards his salvation offered to you in the cross. That's what it means to repent. It means I'm going this way, I'm going to change, and I'm going to go this way instead. Peter says that's the first response to the good news of the gospel, to own and to acknowledge I've been trying to save myself, I've been trying to find salvation in whatever means I can. I've been trying to find life and forgiveness and something to calm this nagging in my soul. And Peter says that thing is the good news of the gospel. When you receive and repent, you turn from your sin and you trust in Jesus. So unashamedly, that's what we're about. So if you're here tonight and maybe you've never trusted in Jesus, you've never trusted him for forgiveness of sins. Maybe you've never embraced the gospel as true. Maybe you've, you've never said, no, I'm I'm tired of running after those things. I'm going to turn around and by faith, I'm going to run after Christ. Maybe you've just been going through the Christian motions because you grew up in the South Your parents forced you to go to church, and so yeah, you said the right things, and you kind of like, yeah, I'm good with the Jesus thing, but you've never actually gone, no, I'm about Him. I'm going to turn from running my own life, and I'm going to pursue Him. I'm going to put my faith and hope and trust in Him and receive forgiveness of sins. If you've never done that, that's your first step of obedience. It's your first step to go, okay, Holy Spirit's convicting me. He's doing something in my soul. He's stirring something in my heart. I can't ignore this Jesus guy. I can't ignore what His Word is saying, and so I'm going to repent. I'm going to give my life to Him. It's your first step. Second step. Number two, get baptized. Get baptized. Peter said, verse 38, repent, be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Just a point of clarity here, what Peter is not saying is that baptism saves you, so I just want to to make sure we're clear on this as a church. If baptism saved you, that would be a works-based salvation. The Bible doesn't teach a works-based salvation. It teaches salvation by grace through faith. Rather, what Peter is saying is the natural next step for someone who repents and receives forgiveness of sins is to go public with that. That's what baptism is. Baptism is an outward symbol of what happens when you repent and put your faith in Jesus. It's an outward physical symbol of an inward reality of a changed heart and life. So when you do, when you get baptized, you go down under the water, signifying I'm dead to my sin. I've died with Christ. And then you come back up again, signifying and declaring to the world that you were raised to new life in Christ. If you've never gone public with your faith through baptism, that's for you as the next step of obedience. Say, declare in front of a church body, "I've, I've accepted Jesus as Lord. I've received forgiveness of sins. Number three, this one's uh, more, and I want to talk about a little bit more to those of us in the room who would claim to be followers of Christ. Number three, go back to the gospel. Go back to the gospel. Some of us, we've gone way too long thinking the gospel's the starting gate to the life. That's like, yeah, it's that thing I affirmed. It's that thing we, we teach to people and we tell them, this is how you become a Christian. Like that's, that's the gospel, but I'm just like, I'm like getting into the deeper things now. You know what I mean? Like I'm reading the heady stuff. I'm reading the good stuff. Like that gospel stuff, that's that, that's that newbie. Is reality church, you don't move past the gospel in your Christian life. Never move past what is central to all of life with God, namely the person and work of Jesus. I think Tim Keller is so helpful here. This is what he says. He says, we never, quote, get beyond the gospel in our Christian life to something more advanced. The gospel is not the first step in a stairway of truth. Rather, it is more like the hub in a wheel of truth gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A to Z of Christianity. The gospel is not just the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom, but the way we make progress in the kingdom. Love this last part. All of us, to some degree, live around the truth of the gospel, but do not get it. So the key to continual and deeper spiritual renewal and revival is the continual rediscovery of the gospel. I love that. I think if you're a follower of Jesus, you would say, yeah, I want deeper spiritual renewal and revival. Like I want to love Jesus more and be about Jesus more tomorrow than I am today and a year from now than I am today. How we get that is not moving past the gospel, moving deeper into the gospel. How the gospel actually plays out in our lives. How to know if you think you've moved past the gospel is at any point in the last 25 minutes or however long I've been talking, you've thought, Tim, move past this. Come on. Come on, I get it. Gospel, Jesus died for me. Yeah, like, give me some good stuff. Give me the application. Give me what to do. Tell me a funny story about cruising. Like, whatever you want to do, just like, give me the good stuff. Let's get going. If you thought that, then let me tell you this, church. You don't understand Christian maturity at all. If you think, oh, let's just get past this gospel stuff. Let's get to the good, like, dig in. Like, what's the Greek? I know you love Greek. Like, tell us the Greek, whatever. Like, let's get it. If you've thought that you don't understand Christian maturity, here's the thing. Christian maturity does not come by moving past the gospel. It goes through moving through the gospel. By going, okay, how does this apply into my life? How does the good news that Jesus died for me actually affect today how I live my day-to-day life? Hey, I just blew up at my husband. I just blew up at my wife. How does the gospel speak to that? How does it actually change me? Hey, I just chewed out my roommate for leaving the dirty dishes in the sink again. How does the gospel speak to that? Hey, I'm feeling so much shame over something that I did or something that happened to me three years ago, four years ago, a month ago. How does the gospel speak to that? Hey, I wake up in the morning and I just don't want to read my Bible. How does the gospel speak to that? Hey, I'm trying to make a budget. I'm trying to spend my money wisely and be a good steward. How does the gospel speak to that? Hey, I'm trying to live in a relationship. I'm trying to be a good friend and care for my neighbors, care for my coworkers. How does the gospel speak to that? All of life, we go back to as a center, as a central reality, as a hub on the wheel. We don't go, hey, the gospel was cool, and that's how I became a Christian, Jesus did some cool stuff. All right, teach me some other stuff now. No, we go back and back and back to the gospel. Ask the question, how does Jesus say? What does he say about this? How's that good news that I'm actually a child of God, that my sins have been forgiven, that I've been washed clean, that I've been made new, that I'm now declared before anything else a child of God, a son or daughter of God, that I'm loved and welcomed in a way that I can never fathom? How does that actually affect my life? And listen, you never get to the bottom of that question. You keep asking it, and you keep applying it, and you keep asking, you keep applying it in community, you keep asking, hey, guys, help me. Help me. Group members, help me. I need you to help me. How does the gospel apply here? How does it affect my life here? How do I remember it here? Help me. I'm so quick and so prone to forget what Jesus has done. Can you just remind me? Can you just tell me? That's why central to our group times when we split up and we do men and women and we share what's going on in our lives and in our hearts and we confess sin and all of that central to our response. We don't want to just be good advice. We want to be gospel-centered realities and truth because we think the gospel is how people change as they remember by the power of the Holy Spirit, what Jesus has done for them. That is how you mature and grow in your faith. You don't move past the gospel. You move further into the gospel, asking those questions, wrestling with those things. Number five, this is where we're all Number five, the promise of the gospel. The promise of the gospel. Verse 38, Peter tells them, hey, what do we do? Repent, be baptized, receive the Holy Spirit, receive forgiveness of sins. Verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Church, the promise of the gospel is that God still saves people. God still saves people. Right after this, in verse 40 and 41, it's going to say that 3,000 people believe. We're going to read it in a second. And this God, for 2,000 years ago, Peter says, hey, repent, believe. He's still saving people today, just like he was 2,000 years ago. Just like he has been for years and years and years. This God still saves. He says, this promise is true for you and for your children and for all who are far off. You don't get much more far off than 2021 in Charlotte, North Carolina. That's far away from what Peter is talking here and when he's talking here. He says, this promise is still true. Promises for all who are far off in distance, who are far off in years. All who the Lord calls to Himself, who put their faith in Jesus, who repent, turn from their sin, and trust in Him, will receive forgiveness of sins and life forever with God. Guaranteed. You will not approach God. You will not come to God going, God, forgive me, and find Him not answering. Promises. He saves. If I can say this, that's one of the reasons why, if you were here a few weeks ago, we can fill up this whole front of the sanctuary and just spill packing peanuts everywhere and go, hey, 125,000 packing peanuts represents 125,000 people within five miles of this building who don't know Jesus. We can all look at that and hopefully rightly go, oof, that's overwhelming. We can also look at that with confidence and go, yeah, and God still saves. He's still building his kingdom, he's still building his church. I don't mean little church citizens, I mean global church, all over the world. He's still redeeming, he's still saving, he's still rescuing people to himself, he's still calling people. That's why we can get up week after week after week and do this thing all over again and preach the gospel and sing the gospel because we believe God still saves people, and so it's worth it, so that one lost sheep, so that one sinner would return home. It's worth it. God still saves. And I love this last part. Peter, or Luke ends the story. He says this, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. I love that. Peter's just like, come on, repent, believe. Come on. He just continues doing it, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Verses 40 and 41 are a reversal of what happened at the Tower of Babel. So this story in Genesis 11, Tower of Babel, humanity gets together. They're like, let's build a tower to Jesus and show off how great we are to God. God's like, nope, not going to happen. He confuses all of their languages and disperses them across the world. And here you have in Acts 2, 40 and 41, Peter preaches to a crowd of people from all over the place. Not just in one language, but in their languages, affirming God's heart for diversity unity and diversity, that they would hear it in their own language, and people from all over the known world hear the gospel, and are saved. Once again, showing Acts 1-8 is going to be accomplished. This theme we said is throughout the book, where, God's, where Jesus tells his disciples, go take the gospel to Jerusalem and Judea, and also Samaria into the ends of the earth. And here you have Peter preaching to people from the ends of the earth, hearing the gospel in their own languages, and 3,000 of them believe. The promise of the gospel is that God... Who redeems and gives salvation to 3,000 people, 2,000 plus years ago, is still saving people today. That's why we go. That's why we share the gospel. That's why we preach. That's why we proclaim. That's why we share our faith. That's why we build relationships. That's why we do all of these things, because God will finish what he started, and his kingdom is still on the move, and Jesus still reigns. That's what we're announcing until the day he returns. And the night he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread is my body given for you. In the same way, he took a cup of wine. He said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant sealed by the shedding of my blood. Every time you eat this bread and you drink this cup, church, every time you rip off and eat this little wafer and you drink this little grape juice, we're celebrating the Lord's death until he returns. We're celebrating that through the sacrifice of Jesus, we can actually be forgiven of sins and made right with God. We are celebrating what is central to all of life with God, namely the gospel. What we get to do here in a second, that's one of the reasons why we take communion every week, is because we want to remember and never move past the body and blood of Jesus. Just key for everything, central to everything. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to respond, we're going to sing, we're going to celebrate King Jesus, we're going to celebrate the good news of the gospel, you can take communion, all that good stuff. If you're not a Christian, I do want to say this, Uh, if, if you're not a Christian, I would ask you not to take communion simply because you'd be saying something is true about yourself that's just not yet. You'd be claiming Christ's death for you when it's just not yet. But rather than take communion, I invite you to believe. Repent. Believe. Take Christ. Receive Him. And get you ready to take communion even tonight. If you have questions about that, about what it means to follow Jesus, we'll be down front afterward. I'd love to talk to you. Let me pray. I'm we'll worship and sing. God, we love you. God, thanks for Peter. Thanks for the early church. Thanks for all these early followers of you who stood out in courage in a culture that didn't want to know you. I can't imagine what kind of Holy Spirit boldness it takes for Peter to stand up in front of a crowd of three thousand plus and go. By the way, you guys killed the one you were waiting on. Can imagine the Holy Spirit courage that it would have taken him, but he was so convinced because he had seen it. He had seen a resurrected Christ. He had seen an empty tomb. He had known that Christ is who he says he was. The work was finished. Death was defeated. Satan was defeated. Sin was defeated. And I pray if there's anybody in the room who's just checking out this Jesus thing, ask them what we're all about. God, would you give them eyes to see and hearts that do not have walls up but are open to you and to your spirit. God, would you even tonight do what you did in Acts 2, cut to the heart respond in faith. God, I pray for those in the room who've been following Jesus for a month, a year, 10 years, 30 years, whatever. God, would you help them remember and be refreshed and renewed in the gospel to be convicted in any way they've tried to move past it for their Christian maturity, but to go back to what is central to the faith, namely what Jesus has done on the cross. God, help us to be a church that never forgets or moves away from or tries to root ourselves in anything else but you and Jesus and the gospel. We, we never be centered around anything else but Jesus. Was to remember him. Was to live for him. To love him.
1: God, we need you in all of this. For all in Jesus' name. Amen.